0: So, we're talking this morning about God's anger. A couple of things. First place I want us to look to see something about God's anger is I want want to look at His description of His anger. And then we're going to go into uh, three passages in the book of Exodus that kind of lead up to that description. Now, that will make more sense when we get there. So first, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 34. Like We're doing kind of alternating weeks, first looking at the different emotions as God experiences them, as they are part of His emotional life, and then following week looking at how we experience that emotion and how to experience that emotion in in a sanctified way, in a way that glorifies God by reflecting the nature of that emotion in Him. So Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse 6. Yahweh passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed. He's telling Moses his name. He's explaining who he is. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord. So, there are five things that Yahweh says about Himself, five descriptive words that He uses to describe His character. His nature, who He is. They are, you see them, merciful, as it's translated in the SV. I like compassionate. Remember, uh, I think I talked early on when we were just talking about the emotions in God. It's wumi. The word is rahum, which in Hebrew means he's, 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 he's connected to His creation in the way that a mother is connected to a child in their womb. That's how He feels and interacts with you. That's how close he is. He's a compassionate God. He's gracious. He shows favor to those who don't deserve it or who, even worse, ill deserve it. He shows favor to people who not only don't deserve favor, but deserve to be disdained or hated or treated with enmity. And then it says that he's slow to anger. The other two, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, uh, he is loyal. And He will always remain the same. He's faithful. And right in the center is this little phrase in Hebrew. Now, this is one. God has a... He's saying, I have a long nose. If you translated it literally, it would say, Yahweh is a God merciful and gracious, and He has a long nose. Now, that's weird, right? <laughs> Is God like, God's like Pinocchio. He's got a long nose. Not because he's lying, but he's, he's got a long nose. Now, that makes, it makes sense in Hebrew because, remember, when we talk about things, we speak in metaphors. That's the way we operate. That's the way language works. We're always comparing one thing to another. For example, when I say something like, I won the argument. What am I saying about the nature of arguments in general? I'm saying something, I'm, I'm operating out of a set of metaphors that we use to discuss argumentation. And I'm saying, argument is war. Discussion, debate is war, and I can win it or I can lose it. We talk about these things, everything in our life, we, that's just how language works. So, the language here, the Hebrew language, the way they describe getting angry, think about the last time you got really angry at somebody. Where did you start to feel that anger in your body? Primarily your head. Your head? And then wh- what happens to somebody's face? They get hot, hot. He has a hot, the, the way you say somebody is angry in Hebrew is you say they have a hot nose. They say his nose got hot. His nose burned hot because your face gets flushed, right? Your head, your face gets flushed and red. Your nose gets hot. Your face gets hot. And to have a long nose then is to say that your nose is like a kind of like a fuse or a wick in a candle and it takes it a long time to burn down. It's this whole metaphor of anger being something like a fire within you. And then it erupts at some point out of your nose. <laughs> I know, crazy, right? You, the, think about um, the image that is often used is a bull snorting before it charges at something. This hot air, steam coming out of its nose. <sighs> because it sees something in between it and it's it it has an obstacle in front of it. So it starts to snort and blow hot air out of its nose. And so God is saying about himself, I have a really long nose. I don't get angry quickly. I do get angry. And that's one thing that we all kind of, uh, I think, in our, in the backgrounds in which I grew up in the church, God's anger was very, was emphasized. <laughs> I got a lot of talk and think, thinking about God's anger. It was usually in the context of what? What does, here, here's a pop quiz. What does God do when he gets angry? Typically in the Bible. God gets angry, then what follows? What comes next? Wrath. What do we mean by wrath? Judgment or punishment of a sin that people committed? Judgment, punishment. That's what we associate his wrath with, right? We associate wrath is kind of a synonym for anger, rage. We tend to think of judgment. Now, is that a biblical way to think about God's anger? That they are that, that it's that simple of a relationship? God gets angry, God brings the the hammer. I don't think so, and that's going to be my point. I want to look at the first time in the Bible that anger is attributed to God, and we're going to go back to the beginning of Exodus to look at this. It's Exodus chapter chapters three and four. The verse we'll be looking specifically at is Exodus four fourteen. So, this idea of judgment and God's anger can make us kind of uncomfortable, right? We're, we're not we are kind of suspicious of angry people. And if we paint God with these angry pictures, we get suspicious that He's gonna, that He is, He's gonna react in judgment. If I do something to make him angry, the hammer's coming down. That's exactly what happens. That's the suspicion that we have of God that's naturally built into us. Now, that suspicion is based in some something true. But like everything in us, it's twisted. So to get it right, let's go right back to the beginning, the first time God is, gets said that God is angry. Exodus 4.14. Who, who's, who's the first person that God, get, God's, God gets angry at in the Bible? Before you look down, you know what chapter we're in. So who's the first person that He gets angry with? Moses. Moses. Mo, oh, Mo, is the first person... anger bookends Moses' life. God's anger is at the beginning of his life and then at the end when he rebels against God and disobeys God, God gets angry with him. But here, Exodus 4.14, then the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Moses and he said, now, the anger was kindled against Moses. What's going on here? What's the context of God getting angry, of Yahweh getting angry at Moses? We need to look at the reasons God gets angry and, the, and what He does in response to His anger. Does he, why does God get angry, and how does He react when He is angry? How does He express His anger? The first thing we're going to see about why God gets angry in this passage is that He's in this back and forth with Moses. Yahweh says to Moses, he he calls from the burning bush, the burning tree, this tree of life that he sees on the mountain. He calls Moses from it and he says, hey, Moses, come over here. Moses comes, I'm going to go see this thing. There's something calling me from the bush. This is holy ground. Take off your shoes. He takes off his shoes. He goes in next to the burning bush and Yahweh starts to speak to him. And Yahweh says, lucky you, Moses. I'm sending you to free my people. You have been chosen, you have been selected from among all the people on the earth to deliver my people Israel. And Moses' reply is what? Uh, I think he got the wrong guy. (laughs) Uh, He says, Who am I? Who am I? I'm, I'm nobody. Lord, who am I that you would send me to deliver this your people from their slavery? Well, one, if Moses would think about it for a second... He's kind of the perfect guy to do this. Why? He was raised in Pharaoh's household. He is schooled in the ways of Egypt. He more than he's more, God has spent his entire life qualifying this man for this position. And he knew it early on, right? He sees the slaves fighting with each other, he sees a dispute among the, among, uh, between one of the Hebrews and an Egyptian. He rises up and kills the Egyptian. He, he kind of, I think, he, he kind of suspected that God was preparing him to deliver His people. But then, what happens? His popular revolt did not happen. <laughs> Nobody rose up to follow him, and he fled because Pharaoh was going to kill him for murdering an Egyptian. He was going to put him to death. So he flees. He spends 40 years in the desert. I'm 39 years old right now, so he spends my entire lifetime plus a year in the desert watching sheep. And now Yahweh comes and says, hey, it's time. It's time to... He says, who am I? You have clearly shown me through my life circumstances that I am nobody. So Yahweh replies, it doesn't matter who you are. (laughs) The more important question is, who am I? and he says i'll be with you i'll go with you you're not going to have to do it alone to which moses gives a second objection yeah but I, I don't really know who you are you say that you know you're the god of our ancestors but i'm not i don't really know you who are who, uh, you're telling me that you're going to be with me but how do i know you're going to stick around how do I know that? Now, if he thought about his objection for a second, he would realize what? That Yahweh is telling him, I'm the God of your ancestors. I made a promise to them 400 years ago that I'm keeping now. I've been faithful to Israel for 400 years. I'm not going to stop now. He's telling him the answer to this question already, but he's, but he's got these objections. He's—it's Well, yeah, it's been 400 years, but what have you done for us lately? We've, we've been in slavery for 400 years. Where have you been? That's kind of the tone of his second objection. Yahweh replies, I am who I am. Let me tell you my name. I am who I am. Everything that is depends on me. I depend on nothing. And guess what? I I have never changed. I do not change. I will not change. And I will be with you. I was with your ancestors, and I'm going to be with you. He's reassuring him. He's trying to build him up. He's trying to get his confidence ready to go and to do this thing that God wants him to do. And since I don't change, he says, and since I have promised to be with you, guess what? I'll always be with you. It's impossible for me to leave you, Moses. What does Moses do? Does Moses go, oh, okay, well, let's go then. No, third objection. They won't listen to me. What What if they don't listen? They're not going to listen. They'll, they'll never believe that I've actually even seen you. Sure, I'm standing here seeing an angel of the Lord inside of a bush that's not being consumed. And yes, I'm having this miraculous experience, but they're not really going to believe me. Well, how does Yahweh reply? He says, stick your hand in your coat. He says, whatever, sure. All right, pull it out. He pulls it out, and it's covered in leprosy. It's rotting off. His arm is shriveled and rotting and he says, all right, stick it back in your coat. All right, pull it out. Oh, and it's miraculously healed. He says, take, you got that staff in your hand right there? Chuck it on the ground. Chucks it on the ground, and it becomes a snake. And he says, show them these signs. Show them miracles. You're going to show up and do these miraculous signs. And if they don't believe that, then go turn the whole Nile River into blood. You have my authority to do it. They'll believe you then. So Moses has seen the miraculous signs. He's demonstrated. God has demonstrated to him this, this power right here. He's staring God in the face, and what? Did, and now, now, surely Moses is going to say, "Yeah, absolutely, I'm in. This is amazing, right?" No, Moses objects again. No, I can't do it. And in, in, in the Hebrew, this is great. Uh, he says, "The way I would translate it is, I can't do it, Lord. I know, talk good." He intentionally baby talks his language. He intentionally uses language. No, no I can't do it. Uh, me, no talk good, Lord. And then Yahweh replies Well, listen, who do you think made your mouth? I can make you talk good, Moses. I can give, I, I will put the words in your mouth. All you gotta do is show up, my man. I am just asking you to walk back to Egypt, walk into Pharaoh's temple, walk into his house, and go to the court and just stand there and I will puppet you like a puppet. I will treat you like Kermit the frog. And, <laughs> and that's how it will go. I made your mouth. I'll put the words in it. And this is Moses'. Final objection. No. Uh, That's going to be a really hard no from me, Lord. You got me. You've answered my every objection. You've got me. I just don't want to do it. I'm not in. You know, and I'm pretty busy here with the sheep and everything. I got a lot of sheep that I'm taking care of. It's pretty important business that I'm doing out here in the middle of the desert. I just don't want to do it. Send somebody else. I'm not doing it. That is the context. And Yahweh's anger was kindled against Moses. Now, what, in our way of thinking about what happens after God's anger, what should come next? In the way that we've often been taught to think about God's anger, what should follow? His anger was kindled against Moses, and he consumed him with fire from heaven, and he devoured him alive, and he buried him beneath the earth, right? Like, that's what we expect. But what does he do? Read the other half of verse 14. He said, he just speaks, he says, Look, Aaron's on his way out here. Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he, and this, he repeats back, I know he talked good, he says to him. I know he good talk, mm. and he's on his way out here, and he's going to be happy to see you. That's why tra- I think uh, the ESV translates it earlier when he says, I'm not eloquent. I'm like, come on. That's, he didn't do uh, that. Anyway, I, I know talk good. He says, Aaron's on his way out, and he talked good. So how about he'll speak for you that way? You don't have to you don't even have to go in. You just I'll say what I'll tell you what needs to be said. You tell Aaron, Aaron will go and speak before Pharaoh. Deal. Done deal. So what's his first how does so we see what first, how would we describe why God is angry? Why is God angry with Moses? Lack of trust. Lack of trust. And in the face of what? Like, every reason that Moses can possibly conceive of to why he should not trust God, everything that he, God gives him a powerful and intense answer, he's answering the mysteries of the questions of the universe in answer to this guy's questions of, Who am I? It's not important to you who you are. I am who I am. He's, 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 he's unveiling the mysteries of the universe and in... in in response to this guy's dumb objections. And he is building a foundation that that anyone should be able to trust underneath him. And he just says, no, 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 no. I can't trust you. You're not trustworthy. I'm not trusting you. I'm not entrusting myself to you. And that makes God angry. When we don't trust Him, when He proves to us over and over and over and over, that I am trustworthy. I am worthy of your trust. He's literally holding you together right now. He's the foundation on which everything is made, and you think you can't trust Him. If He, if he stepped back from holding you together For a second, you would dissolve back into the particles from which you are, of which you consist. And yet we think we can't trust him. And that makes him angry. But how? Okay, so that's one. Why does God get angry? He gets angry because he proves himself over and over and over that he's trustworthy, and we still don't trust. Two, how does he respond to this lack of trust? Each time, Each time, how does he respond? Because each objection is a greater demonstration of Moses' lack of trust, and each and every time, how would we describe? Somebody give me a word. How would you describe Yahweh's response? What's that? Provision. That's good. Provision. He provides an answer to his objections, and he provides an answer in a person. To his last objection, and he, uh, he condescends. He says, okay, you won't trust me? Fine. We'll do it this way. You won't trust me? Fine. We'll do it this way. Even when he gets angry, he says, fine. We'll do it this way. When you have kids, this will become a very important passage to you. <laughs> this will become a very important idea. Your kids don't trust you. You think They do not instinctively trust you. Every time you try to feed them something to keep them alive, you set this bounty before them, and they're disgusted. Surely you're trying to poison me this time. I don't trust you. They look at you with this look like... Like the grilled chicken that we have had 700 times, and the time you had it last, you loved it. This time we snuck the poison in. This time we're trying to knock you out. This time, like, they do not instinctively trust you, but you were the instruments for bringing them into the world. I'm not trying to kill you, (laughs) I'm trying to keep you alive. With everything that I do, I'm trying to keep you alive and sustain you and make sure you flourish. That's my every objective and almost every part of my life is connected to that end in some way. And yet, when I say, do this or do that, or hey, let's go do this together, you don't trust me instinctively. They wince and they back away, and you prove it to them over and over and over, and it will make you angry eventually. Depending on how long your nose is. He gives, you know, Moses, he gives Moses five objections before he gets angry. I, I usually, my kids are good for about two or three before my nose burns hot. Uh, so that's the second thing. He condescends. He goes down to the level. At whatever level Moses needs him to be at, he's angry about having to do it. He's angry that Moses won't trust him. But his reaction is his action, the action that follows is all right, I got to go lower then. I haven't gone low enough. I must go lower still. So here's the, the second passage Exodus 15. looking at verses 4 through 8. So, this is after Moses gets over himself, and and they go in, there's plagues, uh, uh, Passover, they go through the Red Sea, the Lord stand and see the deliverance of the Lord. You know, uh, they're backed into between a, uh, a, a, a lake and an army, and all they have to do is stand and see the Lord deliver them. The seas split open. They pass through, and the seas come back, and they kill Pharaoh and his army. Yahweh wipes out the army of the greatest superpower in the world in a night. In like 15 minutes or something. <laughs> after, after the waters come in. And so this is their, this is their response. They should, they're celebrating. So this is the song of the sea. Or the Song of Moses. I like the Song of the Sea, because it's about sea. Pharaoh's chariots and his host, Yahweh, cast into the sea, and his chosen officers, he sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power, your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your your adversaries. You send out your, and he starts stacking up uh, um, names for anger. Uh, You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble, it's like fire. At the blast of your nostrils, there's that snorting bull kind of imagery. You wonder why later on they make a golden bull out of him. You know, it's like this bull imagery is. Is in here. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. So, who's, ang- who's, who's Yahweh angry at this time? Who is this expressing his anger towards? The Egyptians. And specifically, one Egyptian at the head of them, the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, what, what do we know about Pharaoh? What, what has Pharaoh been up to? What has this Pharaoh been up to for the last little while? He's, at least his dad did what? <laughs> and he's painted as being the same character because you know uh, they, they never actually give you his name in the book of Exodus. And that is on purpose. That is on purpose to make you see Pharaoh as a representative character of the serpent from Genesis 3 as a national representative of evil. Whether it's his father or the son, they're doing evil things. What is he doing? What, is he, what has he been doing? What are some things that Pharaoh has been up to? Hardening his, heart. Hardening his heart. Yeah. Yahweh sends plagues. And for the first six of them, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And for the last four, Yahweh hardens his heart. He lets Pharaoh harden it to the point to where it's not going to be broken anymore and then says, we're going to harden it to the point to where you are so stupid from your hard heart that when I set these people free, you're going to chase them into the parted waters and I'm going to drown you in the sea. Now, why does he drown him in the sea? Why is it appropriate? Why is it, an, why is it an appropriate expression of God's anger to drown Pharaoh and his army? Thoughts? <clears throat> yes. What, what, how did Moses end up in Pharaoh's house? Right? He was slotted for execution because he was a son of the Israelites. They were growing too quickly. They were afraid that this people who were foreigners to them would gather together, join with their enemies, lead a popular rev- revolt. So that's why they enslaved them, and they just kept reproducing and kept reproducing and kept reproducing, and what are they going to do? Let's just start throwing their sons in the river. Let's just drown their children. That'll stop them. So, it's appropriate. God's anger, one thing we learn from this... Expression of God's anger. One, he gives Pharaoh ten chances. How many chances did he give to Moses? Moses objected five times. He gave twice as much rope to Pharaoh to hang himself with that he gave to Moses. His anger burned longer, and therefore when it came down, it was hotter. He doesn't make the concession to Pharaoh He brings the judgment he brings what we typically think of and associate with anger but think about all that pharaoh had to do to to why did why did god get angry he won He, he was murdering he was committing genocide on his people he was enslaving peoples he was notoriously an evil ruler he And he hardened his heart over and over, saw these miracles, saw the clear division that God made between his own people and the Egyptians over and over and over and over and over. And all he did, all he did was make him more and more rebellious. And so it gets to the point to where it's like, all you're going to do is bring evil and destruction in the world, and now it's time for that to end. So God gets angry at hardness of heart, stubborn hardness of heart, And he expresses that anger in this instance by bringing judgment. So there's sometimes that his anger is expressed in judgment. And that's the truth, the reality that our distorted view of it is based on. Because what do we think? We think God is like, like Zeus or something, that he just, you know, He's sitting up there with a ready to hurl lightning bolts down on us the first time we step out of line. But even with Pharaoh, ten plagues, genocidal maniac, before he (laughs) steps in and acts in his anger to bring justice. And that's the second thing. His anger brings justice. It is not overexpressed. It's like a laser. It's eye for an eye. You guys ever heard this? It's called the Law of Talion. Like, eye for an eye. And I used to think that that was like a bad thing. I used to think that like, oh, if you hurt me, I get to hurt you back that much. But really, that's a protection. That's a legal protection. It's, it would be better to translate that, only an eye for an eye. You cannot take more in retributive justice than was taken from you. It must be paid back perfectly, value for value, and no more. It restrains that vengeance that we would take on other people in our anger. It says, go here and no further. And Yahweh Himself abides by that principle. He doesn't command it for us and then not do it Himself. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. His anger is perfectly modulated to accomplish his purposes behind it so here's the third one Exodus 3210 this is you'll notice this is getting a little closer to when he describes himself as slow to anger Exodus 3210 now the context <laughs> of This expression of God's anger. They get out of the land. They get out of Egypt. They go through the wilderness. God provides water. He does everything they need. They get to Sinai. They get to the mountain. And uh, there's some debate about whether Yahweh is calling them up to the mountain. They refuse to go up. They, They say, We can't listen to him. Send Moses up for us. Moses, you go. We can't listen to God anymore. We can't hear that voice anymore. You go up, get the law for us, get the covenant, and get everything we need to know for us, and then you come back down and you explain it to us. Now, they're asking for an intermediary, a lot like Moses did, right? Moses said, Hey, I can't go speak. You put somebody in between me and Pharaoh. And now, Moses' confidence is built a little bit. <laughs> so he says, So he goes up the mountain. He's on top of the mountain. He's up there for 40 days getting instructions, diagrams for the temple, for the tabernacle, for the place for heaven on earth in the midst of the Israelite camp. A portable Eden, so that Yahweh can dwell in the midst of His people. And they've already made this covenant oath that we'll be Yahweh's people, and He'll be our God. So, what is a covenant? You ever been to a wedding? You've seen somebody make a covenant. It's a promise to death made between two people because because of their love. Even when it's two rulers, the language in the ancient world was, you will love the great suzerain so-and-so. You, you know? It's like you will, if Pharaoh was your king and you were his vassal and you were making a, a covenant with him, in that covenant it would say, you'll love Pharaoh. Not just you'll be loyal to him, not just you'll obey him, but you're going to love him. Because there was this picture, this image of nations being married to each other. And they use that, that picture, that image. And so Yahweh is marrying this people. They're going up, and they're getting desi- Moses is getting the design for the house they're going to live in together. He says, all right, Moses, come up here, get a blueprint for the house that we're going to live in among my people that I've just wed. And what are they doing at the bottom of the mountain? We don't know what happened to this Moses guy, you know. Who knows what happened to him? He's been gone forty days. Forget all this business. Make us a, They talk to Aaron. Make us a. Make us a god for us to worship. And uh, they take their jewelry, they melt it down, and he makes it into a golden calf. I don't like that translation. You'll hear me say that a lot, probably. It's the. He, they're not making a golden like baby cow that you you know bottle. You guys. I grew up on a farm. So, like, you bottle feed the little baby cows, that's a calf. What, st- what they made was a golden bullock, was a, go- was a-, was a golden bull that was uh, capable of reproduction, I will say. <laughs> so, a-, a teenage bull full of vigor and energy at the prime of its life, ready to fight and ready to mate. And that's what they made because they want, that's how they were picturing their God because he just overthrew the Egyptians with the horns and the snorting anger. And so they said, This is the God we want. We want the God who's a bull and he'll wreck shop. That's the God we want. Problem was, that's not the God they had, that's not the God they married. So what are they doing? What is making an idol? Throughout the rest of the Bible, it's called what? It's it's, it's made synonymous with adultery. So here at the altar, this is the equivalent of at your wedding, you've just said your vows, you kissed the bride, you went to go get changed for the reception, and she is in the changing room with the best man. That is what is happening here. I know it's shocking, right? It kind of it makes you angry, doesn't it? If you put yourself in that situation, you get furious. Especially after all that he's done for this people after all that he's done to bring this bride to himself and to make her his and to beautify her and to to provide for her and all he's promised to do, she sleeps around on him before the wedding is even over. So Exodus 32.10 says, starting at verse 9, And Yahweh said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff necked people. They're stubborn, pig headed, hard hearted people. He later says they have foreheads like bronze. You can't tell this people anything. Now, therefore, let me alone. In the Hebrew, it says, Give me rest. He uses Noah's name, Noach, and he makes it a verb, and he says, Give me rest. Give me rest. I, this, this is making me un. I cannot rest. That my wrath may burn hot against them. You, Moses, you see it translated as "Leave me alone," and that's one thing that it can mean. Like, get these people out of my presence before I consume them with fire, so that I can burn hot against them. You got to give me rest. Something's got to. Something's got to. Turn away my wrath and my anger before I consume them in order that I may make, and I'll make a great nation out of you. If you don't give me rest, Moses, if you don't do something right now to stop me, I'm wiping them out and we're starting over with you. So Moses prays. Moses says, okay. He he banks on everything he knows about Yahweh so far. He's like, okay, 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 okay. What do I know about this God? What do I know about Yahweh? Like, if you, if you think about it, he's only known Yahweh for what, like a, a couple of months now? But he, he knows some stuff. And so he says, okay, what do I know? What do I know? Okay, uh, I know... That you're concerned for your great name. This whole exodus, this whole deliverance. One reason you're angry is because these people represent you before the world and you care about what people think about your name. So what will the Egyptians say? He says. When they find out that you did indeed bring them out in the wilderness to kill them. They'll say that you're a liar. You'll get a reputation for, for, for being, being a betrayer. You can't have people thinking that about you. Number two, he says, remember your promise. You promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob that you'd make a great nation of this people, you'd bring them in the land, you'd give them what you promised. Remember your promise. And this act of intercession, this mediation, he also says, like, listen, kill me, take me, wipe me out, take me out, but save them. So what does God get angry at here? He gets angry at the people that are closest to him, just like we do. The people that are closest to you, I can can forgive somebody who cuts me off in traffic really quickly. I get a little, uh, but I forgive them really quickly. But what happens when my wife lies to me or when my kids do something? The people that are closest to you have them, you, you get angriest at, and you get angry at easier. And that's what's happening here. He's getting angry at them because of the closeness. He's ready to wipe them out. But then what does this reveal? It reveals that what we need, what God not, as, God... not only is God slow to anger, which is the new thing that will be revealed about God. My anger is slow. Now, if we've been thinking about God's anger in the book of Exodus so far, we'd have figured that out before He told us, right? He's really slow to anger. Not only is God slow to anger, but He's willing to turn away from His anger in response to a righteous mediator who will intercede for the objects of his anger. So what is this setting up for? Here's Sunday school answer. Setting up for a righteous mediator who will take God's anger on himself. He says, Moses, no, nah, I can't kill you. You can't die in the place of this people. You're a sinner too. You deserve your own death. So we need a mediator. We will need a mediator. A righteous mediator who does not deserve death, but who will nevertheless offer his own life in the place of his people so that my wrath, so that my anger at sin can be quenched, so that I can be just and the justifier of the guilty. One last thing. Proverbs uh, chapter 16 says, the one who acquits the guilty and, talking about judges, the one who acquits the guilty or the one who punishes the righteous are both alike an abomination to Yahweh. But in Exodus 34... He says, both I forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, but I will by no means clear the guilty. The Hebrew word for forgive is carry. He says, I'll carry your sin. Somebody has to carry it. For it to be forgiven, I have to carry it, I have to put it on myself. I can't just write it off, that would be unjust. And so all of this comes together to show us that what we need is Yahweh Himself to bear our sin, iniquity, transgression, and sin, to forgive us and to turn away His own wrath, His own anger against sin and rebellion and stubbornness. And that'll set us up pretty good for next week. Father, thank You for Your Word. Uh, Thank You that You turned... um, that you found rest in your Son, that you, uh, you turn away your anger because of Jesus bearing, bearing our sin for us. And pray that you would uh, encourage our hearts, strengthen us to uh, trust in that forgiveness and the status that it gives us before you as righteous, that you are just and the justifier. You didn't have to compromise your justice to acquit the guilty ones like us, though your Son did become an abomination to acquit us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing these things for us. It's through your, it's in your name that I pray. Amen.